I'm going to begin reading with verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. I never read that text without thinking of an incident that uh, occurred 20 years or more ago. I travel with a good friend of mine to the eastern uh, seaboard to speak to a Christian college. They were having a, a series of lectures during their spiritual emphasis week, and my friend and I were asked to, uh, to speak in chapel every day. And uh, when we uh, when we arrived on campus and after we had talked to students for a while, it became apparent to us that there was a, an appalling spiritual deadness on that campus. There was a real indifference to spiritual things. And though it was a Bible college, very few students in the college really took the Bible very seriously. And my friend, who is very outspoken, when he took his turn at the chapel service, read this passage, and then he made the comment after reading it, that those of you in this college, uh, in this uh, college community, he said, will be the first to rise because Paul says that the dead in Christ shall rise first. <laughs> I didn't have the nerve to say anything like that, but he did. And they went on to point out, as I must point out, that that is not Paul's argument in this particular text. He's not talking about the spiritually dead, but the physically dead in Christ who will rise first. I always respond with some wonderment to uh, people who tell me that they think the Bible is irrelevant. Last week, we looked at a text in which Paul told us how to deal with our sex drives. In this passage, we're dealing with a text where Paul tells us how to approach our death. I can't think of two more relevant topics, even though the New Testament is at least 2,000 or almost 2,000 years old. And uh, many parts of the Old Testament are much older than that. This book speaks truth, and truth is always relevant, no matter what, uh, what period of time we're dealing with. Ben Franklin said the two certainties in life are taxes and death. We can do something about taxes, perhaps, but death is one of those hard facts in life about which we can do nothing. I've commented before on C.S. Lewis's uh, reference to his wife's conversation with a young woman who said she didn't worry about death because she was certain by the time it came for her to die, science would have done something about it. But uh, science has not done anything about it. Death is just uh, one of those absolute certainties in life that we have to face. And an incident like the Bay Area earthquake brings death very forcibly to us. 
Uh, Blaise Pascal, the 16th century mathematician and, and philosopher, said that the human race is like a bunch of people in a room who are condemned to death, and every day one of them is taken out and executed in the presence of all the others, and it simply reminds everyone in the room that their time will come. And I think that's the terror in a, a situation like the earthquake last week, that we think uh, it just brings us face to face with our death, and we think about our own death, and we realize that one of these days our time will come. I used to commute up and down that freeway the last year I was in... Uh, I was in the San Francisco area. I drove down that freeway two or three times a week, right across the Nimitz uh, off-ramp there on 880. And in geological time, 12 or 13 years, which was the time that I drove across that uh, portion of the, of the freeway, it's just a snap of the fingers, it could very well have happened to me. It could happen to any of us. And uh, these so-called accidents in in our world, just bring us face to face with the fact that one of these days we're all going to die. Uh, we were so preoccupied with health and keeping ourselves in good shape and trying to prolong our life a little bit uh, longer, we act as though we don't think we're going to die. We all think we're immortal, but we will. One of these days, the Grim Reaper will show up on our doorstep, and he'll ask for us. I was reminded this past week of Jim Fix. Some of you remember uh, him as the uh, author of, of, the, of the running book. He started running when he was 35 years of age. He shed 65 pounds. Uh, he participated in a number of long-distance events. He was a marathon runner, and, and he dropped over dead of cardiac arrest at age 51. Uh, as doctor said, he may have added a few years to his life, but it's unlikely because his father died at 45 of the uh, same affliction. So he may have added a few years, but in the end, Jim Fix died, just as Lynn Bias did, and just as our friends do, and, and just as we will someday. That's just one of those hard facts of life, which we can't evade. We try to, try to stave it off as long as we can, but in the end... We all die. No one will get out of this life alive, as they say. The statistics on death are very impressive. One out of every one dies. A related problem is the death of our loved ones. Uh, my mother went to be with the Lord a number of years ago. My father, as most of you know, died last year. My uh, best friend, friend of 20 years or more, uh, John Landreth died of cancer a couple of years back, and uh, we have to have some way to deal with, with the loss of our loved ones. Many of you here in this congregation have lost your spouses in this last year. Some of you have lost children. And the question comes to us, will we ever see them again? Or are they lost to us forever? Now, that's the issue that Paul is dealing with in this text, and I can't think of a more relevant passage for us to read. Now, Paul says some interesting things. Uh, the, thing, the, 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 the statement that struck me at the outset is that Paul said, we do grieve. We just don't grieve as those that have no hope. Christians aren't Stoics. We're not trying to achieve pure mind without passion. Stoicism is a pagan uh, uh, philosophy. It's not Christian. We Christians don't believe that you can suppress all of your desires and 
and the, and the longings and the heartaches that, that life brings our way. Heartache is very human. Uh, our Lord, when he took on our humanity, wept. He was a man of sorrows, as Isaiah puts it. He was acquainted with grief. He stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and unashamedly wept. If a perfect man could not walk through this world without being deeply touched by our infirmities, then how can we expect to go through life without being hurt? We will grieve. I've quoted before uh, George MacDonald's words, sometimes tears are the only cure for weeping. It's all right to cry. It's all right to have our hearts broken. It's not non-Christian or unchristian. But as Paul puts it, we do not grieve as those that have no hope. There are a set of unassailable facts that are just as certain as the fact of our death, and it's those facts that give us hope. The first is that we believe, as Paul puts it in verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, uh, the translators suggested that this, uh, there's some contingency and you know, some possibility that, that this might not have happened if we believe. But uh, the, NA, the NIV is correct in translating simply, translating the phrase simply as a fact, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is as good as any event in history that no one questions. You know, no one today questions the fact that Jesus lived. Because that's a natural fact of life. I think Albert Schweitzer was the last person to bring the historicity of Jesus into question. And I don't know of any historian today who questions the fact that Jesus lived. Because the historical data is very good. And no one questions the fact that he died, because, again, that's a natural phenomenon. Everyone dies, and, and so nobody, you know, that's not up for grabs. Nobody questions the fact that Jesus died or that he died on a cross. But people do question the fact that he rose from the dead, not because the evidence is bad, but because they have an anti-supernatural bias. It's a philosophical problem. It has nothing to do with history. The evidence is extremely good. For example, Paul wrote about 50 A.D. He wrote this book, 1 Thessalonians, about 50 A.D. Jesus died uh, sometime around 30, A.D. 30, 20 years after it was reported that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul is saying it happened. And if the opponents of the gospel wanted to put an end to this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, they could have done it immediately. They could have produced the body. They could have produced any number of people who had seen him put in the grave and kept there and There'd be, there'd be no question that they could have, they could have stopped this uh, rumor. In, in fact, they tried to from the very beginning, and they couldn't because the, the facts were unassailable. He rose from the dead. Think for a minute of the death of President Kennedy. He died something over 25 years ago. Suppose the rumor started circulating that President Kennedy was alive today, that he had risen from the dead. It would be very easy to stop that rumor. You just produce the body. That's all you'd have to do. Paul said, I know over 500 people that saw Jesus walking around. They spoke to him. I have their phone numbers. You can call them up. You can check it out. And they'll tell you that he, he, he rose from the dead. The evidence is very good. The reason people don't believe it is because they have a, a philosophical problem. They have a religious problem. They have an anti-supernatural bias. They don't believe that someone could rise from the dead. 
the evidence is there. I've told you before about the conversation I had with the man who uh, who kept talking about the Easter event. And I said, what do you mean by the Easter event? He said, the idea that the early church had that Jesus rose from the dead that gave them hope. And I said, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And he said, no. He said, you couldn't possibly believe that a dead body came out of a tomb. A carcass came alive. You don't believe that, do you? And I said, yes. As a matter of fact, I do. Because if I, if I didn't believe that, I would, as Paul puts it, I would, of all men, be most miserable. I, we might as well give up our Christian faith because that's the linchpin of our, of our faith. Let's shut down all the churches and make museums of them as they have in Albania today. Let's uh, hand out pink slips to all the clergy. Let's get on with the business of making money and skiing the tough slopes and killing the big elk and go for all the gusto because this is all there is. What you see is what you get. When it's over... It's over. But Paul says in a number of places, it did, in fact, happen. Jesus did rise from the dead. That's one of those unassailable facts. Now, the second fact that Paul alludes to is, since it's true, those who are in Christ have fallen asleep. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. I love that phrase, falling asleep, because uh, all of us fall asleep. It's, it's a good thing to catch up on your sleep. Naps are, are nice. My, I have a custom on Sunday afternoon. I turn on NFL football game, lay down on the floor, and go to sleep. I've slept through more NFL games than anyone in history. I never know what's going on. My family steps over me, around me. They, you know, they go on about their business, and, and I just nap. But nobody panics. They don't call 911 when I uh, lay down and take a nap because they know that I'm going to wake up. This idea of sleeping is embedded in Scripture from the very beginning. The, the patriarchs, uh, the writers of the Old Testament talked about the patriarchs being laying down with their with their fathers and Daniel talks about those who sleep in the ground will rise and, and perhaps uh, one of the most helpful incidents is the story uh, that we talked about a few years ago the the raising of Jairus' daughter Jairus asked Jesus to come and save his little girl's life and by the time Jesus got to the house the little girl was dead Luke who's a physician says that her spirit had left her. She was dead. Jesus walked into the room. The professional whalers were gathered around the, her little bed, and they, they, were, they were carrying on, and Jesus said, uh, she's just asleep. And they laughed at him. And so Jesus shooed them all out of the room, and he said to the little girl, Tabitha Kumi, it's Aramaic for little girl, get up. And she got up. <laughs> Luke says her spirit came back into her and she got up. And that's a little picture, as I told you before, these miracles of little, are little pictures of what our Lord is going to do in a big way when he comes back. He's just going to say, get up, get up. And everybody's going to get up. That's in Christ. It used to be my job on school days to wake our boys up. Carolyn would be in the kitchen fixing breakfast and I'd go wake them up and I'd go in, you know, and kind of rust, 
wrestle around them a little bit, rub their back, rough up their hair, and say, okay, guys, get up, get up, it's time to get up. And they'd get up, reluctantly, but they did get up. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. When he comes back, he will come back with a, a loud command. As Paul puts it, it's a military term, to call to attention. And, and the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, the, the angel, I suppose, will play reveille. And everybody will get up. You men that or women that were in the military know what that's like. You play taps and you go to sleep at night. Nobody gets too worried about you because in the morning they play reveille and you get up. You get back to work. And that's the figure that, figure that, that Jesus uses here. Death for those that are in Christ is just like going to sleep. Nobody panics. And one of these days our Lord's going to come back and he's going to say, okay, it's time to get up. And those that are in Christ will get up. The words that Paul uses are, are in fact, the entire New Testament uses are, are very interesting. The sleep is, uh, is the word uh, that we get our word cemetery from. Koimeo. Koimeo means to lie down. Cemetery is a place where people lay down. The word for resurrection, anastasis. Stasis means stand and ana means up. Stand up. That's the resurrection. And I understand the Dutch word for resurrection is oopstanden. <laughs> so our Lord will come back, and uh, I suppose he'll say to all the people that speak Dutch, oopstanden, and they, they'll all get up. Now, I understand there was a lot of discussion this past week in the growth groups about soul sleep and what happens to the soul in the interim, because uh, since the New Testament seems to make it very clear that and when we die, we'll open our eyes, and the first person we'll see is the Lord Jesus. And the question is, what happens to the body, and and what happens to the soul, and is the soul immediately in God's presence? And and since Paul says nobody wants to be a disembodied spirit, and, and I don't think any of us feel particularly comfortable about wandering around heaven, a, a kind of uh, numinous presence without a body. We're so used to bodies, we wouldn't know how to act without one. So there are all sorts of theories uh, about how this sort of thing comes about. Does the soul sleep for a period of time and then wake up? and Or, or perhaps the soul goes to be with the Lord, but the body, there's an intermediate body, kind of a spare body that God has for you, which you wear until you get your other body, sort of like one of these little tires that you put on a car until, you know, you get to the service station. All I can say is I don't really know how the Lord's going to do all of this. That's his problem. I don't know. When Paul uses the word sleep, he's talking about the body sleeping. It's, it's the body that, that reclines and, and rests. The spirit goes immediately into the Lord's presence. And How he's going to work all this out, I just leave with him because he's been faithful in the, in the, in the past. I, know how he's going to, I, don't, I don't know how he's going to put it all together, but I, I know he will. I remember years ago hearing a conversation between Lambert Dolphin and another scientist, some of you, no Lambert or no of him. He's a physicist with, science, with uh, Stanford Research Institute. And uh, I was just listening in. I didn't understand much of what they were talking about. But they were talking about the relativity of time and the elasticity of time. And, and uh, the whole thing eluded me. It reminded me of the, of the limerick about the young lady named Bright 
whose speed was much greater than light. So she set off one day in a relative way and returned on the previous night. Uh, it, it all uh, went, went right past me, but, but there was an interesting comment that Lambert made. He said, most of us think of eternity as an endless sequence of time. He said, we use analogies to indicate, uh, you know, long period, prolongation of time, long periods of time. He said, we use illustrations like the one that I heard as a child. I still remember it. bird flies to a, a peak a thousand miles away. It rubs its bill once against the peak, and then it flies back. It takes a thousand of those trips to wear off one uh, millimeter of rock. Uh, by the time the mountain is is uh, worn down to the ground, that'll just be the beginning of eternity. And, and those kinds of illustrations that are often used. Lambert said, that. "He said no. He said eternity is not an endless sequence of time. Physicists know that time is simply matter in motion. There's no matter in a spiritual state. Therefore, there can be no time. There's a total absence of time. So everything is now." And he said, "Therefore, when you die." The second coming occurs at that moment. Adam and Eve are just getting there. Paul is just getting there. Everyone is united at once in one moment of time because everything is now. Now, I don't know. My mind blows at that point, so I don't understand it. (laughs) But all I can say is that God lives outside of time, and I trust him. He's going to take care of all these problems. And whether the soul sleeps or there's an intermediate body, I'll just leave all that up to God. He knows what's best. All I know is that one of these days we're all going to be joined together in him. Now, the third fact is that when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring his loved, our loved ones with him. Verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that Quote, we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds, To meet the Lord in the air. I think the question that the people in Thessalonica were wrestling with was, it had something to do with the relationship between those that had died and gone on and those who were still alive. Many of these people had only the Old Testament to refer to. The Old Testament talks very clearly about a resurrection from the dead. That was uh, what uh, Martha was thinking about when she said to Jesus, I know that my brother will rise in the last days. Jesus went on to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, he'll live again. But, he said, there are some who are living who will never die. Now, that was something new. The Jews of that day did not realize that there would be some people who are still alive when the Lord came back. That's the mystery that Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, what he is saying is that there are some that have died and gone on, and they will be resurrected when the Lord comes back, but there are some of us who will be alive when he comes back. Now, Paul thought he might very well be alive when the Lord came back. The the, uh, people who lived in the first century believed in the imminency of the coming of Christ and 
And Paul believed it with such uh, confidence that he thought the Lord might come back in his lifetime. So he included himself in those who, were, who, who might be alive when the Lord comes back. Now, he died, and generations have passed. But the, the certainty of the Lord's coming is no less, uh, no less certain. And uh, it may well be that there will be many of us here today who are alive when the Lord comes back. But Paul says, I want to explain a mystery to you. This is a revelation from our Lord. He describes it here as something from the Lord himself. This is the Lord's own word to us. That those that have gone on will not proceed, uh, who have preceded us in death, will be resurrected and given their resurrection bodies. They'll come back with Jesus when he, when he returns. And then we'll be caught up. Uh, Paul uses a word that actually means to snatch. We'll be snatched up to meet them in the air. And we'll always be with them. That's the fourth fact. We will be with the Lord. And we'll be with our loved ones. That's a tremendously encouraging thing. To know that we will spend eternity with our spouses that have gone on ahead, with our children who have perished, with our mothers and fathers and grandparents and our dear friends that have died. We will be with them forever. There's something about uh, uh, family reunions that uh, always leave us a little bit empty. We, we go with uh, great expectations and then they turn out to be a real downer. Something always happens. You know, people don't act as they ought to act. They don't behave the way they should behave. And we go back disappointed. But what Paul is saying is that when we step into, into heaven and we're re- reunited with all of our friends, then there will be the kind of perfect reunion that we long for here on this earth but have never experienced. You see, everything that happens here, the good things that happen to us in life, all the longings and aspirations and desires of our lives will be fulfilled in heaven. That's why Jesus uses uh, the metaphor of going to the Father's house. Going home is like going home, if you understand what I mean. You go back to your, your ancestral home and your father's there and all the children come out of the rooms and you have this wonderful meeting. The problem is it's never quite like that here. It's always problematic. So many times I went home to spend time with my father, and and I went with great expectations, and then we'd get into some argument over theology or something, there'd be a little separation, and it was never quite what I thought it ought to be. I always went away with a little bit of emptiness. But one of these days, I'm going to step into the Lord's presence and into my father's presence in heaven, and the sin in me will be removed, and uh, the sin in him will be removed, and there will be this perfect reunion that we've that we look for here and and never experience you see we'll be with our lord we'll be with the people we love forever these uh, comments earlier were interesting to me we had a chat this morning before she sang in the first service she told me what uh, what she was going to do and we were talking about how difficult it is for us to imagine heaven in this world, <clears throat> and it reminded me of um, a Woody Allen movie that Carolyn and I saw years ago, The Purple Rose of Cairo. Uh, I don't have all the facts because I hadn't planned to talk about this, but, uh, but I just I remember that Mia Farah, who played the part of the heroine, went to this movie, and uh, here 
on the screen, this hero appeared. And after a bit, he steps out of the screen. He steps out of his two-dimensional world into a three-dimensional world. And those of you that know the, have seen the movie know what happened. You know, he uh, fell down, hurt himself, and he'd, he'd never, falling never hurt him before because he was just a character in a two-dimensional world. And uh, then he, he kisses Mia Farrow, and he waits for the fade-out, and nothing happens, you know, because this is what happens in his world. And someone asks him about God, and incidentally, so many of Woody Allen's movies are his efforts you know, to try to work with his own, his own heart condition and dissatisfaction and his hungering for God. And somebody asks him, uh, asks the hero, uh, whose name I've forgotten, does he know about God? He's the controller of all things. And he said, oh, yes, that's Mr. Mayor. He owns the studio. And uh, he doesn't understand. He can't get it. Then he goes back into his world, and he tries to explain to two-dimensional creatures what life is like in a three-dimensional world, and they don't understand. And I think that's something of what our Lord struggled with in coming here to earth and trying to explain to us what life is like in heaven. And, in, in, and I feel the same frustration in trying to understand what heaven is like when we only had these poor illustrations and similes and metaphors here on, on this earth. But Dee's comment about seeing a meadow and, and thinking of heaven as, a, as an Elysian field is very touching because that's one of the good things about life that I think picture in a very small way what heaven is like. Uh, last year, Carolyn and I went to Banff, the provincial park up in Canada. We're, we took tea in, in the hotel up at Lake Louise in front of those windows. Some of you have been up there. Uh, it's just a, a, an incredible sight. You look down over that that uh, that uh, beautiful lake, Lake Louise, to the glacier at the other end, and and your your eyes can hardly take it all in. It just staggers the mind. But I know because I've seen scenes like that a number of times that after a while you're not satisfied with seeing it's the same observation that the writer of Ecclesiastes makes after a while you just yeah you've seen it you know but it's that first look that's so touching if seeing creation has that effect upon us imagine what it's like to see the creator to stand face to face with our Lord Jesus. You see, that's what makes heaven heavenly. We'll be with him. Oh, it's wonderful to think that we'll be with our loved ones. But for me, it's the fact that we'll see our Lord face to face. That's why Paul describes those that are in Christ as those who love his appearing. That's what we look for. We want to see him. Annie Cousins took... Um, some of the poems of, of uh, William Rutherford, Samuel Rutherford, rather, and um, strung them, some of, the, some of the words in his poems and, poems, and strung them together into the song that we so often sing. And one winter, he was standing hip deep in snow, looking out across the fields uh, on, in the ran- on the ranch in which he lived and saw the postman coming about a mile down the road and leave something in the mailbox and so he strapped on his snowshoes and floundered through the snow out to the mailbox, opened it up and it was a seed catalog. And he was really disappointed. So he took it out and he started looking at the pictures and began to imagine what spring would be like when 
when the seeds began to begin, when they germinated and when the snow melted away and the, the flowers began to grow. And, and he said he thought of this, of this uh, hymn. And here we are in the winter of our discontent, but day spring is at hand. It's just as close as our death. It could be today. It could be next week. It could be this year. But um, as G.K. Chesterton said, we don't need to fear it. We can look forward to it with colossal joy. Because it's the culmination of all the good things that we've enjoyed in this life, but they'll be enjoyed in their perfected state. Ms. Cousins Cousins goes on, O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. I thought as I was... uh, looking again at this material of the last battle C.S. Lewis's uh, C.S. Lewis's the last of C.S. Lewis's Narnia tales and uh, he tells of the incident that took place uh, in the stable after the, the final battle and the children find themselves in the stable And it dawned on me for the first time the significance of the stable. The story begins in a stable and it ends in a stable, which makes Lewis's statement that the the outside is much bigger, the inside is much bigger than the outside, so much more significant. When you think of the first stable in which the incarnation began, it truly can be said that the inside is so much bigger than the outside. There's so much there going on than you can imagine. The same thing is true of our death. When we step through the door into the stable, then real life begins. And uh, Lewis's unicorn puts it like this. I have come here at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. So that you think of all the things that bring us joy in this life. They will be amplified and magnified an infinite number of times when we step through death into the presence of our Lord. And we find things as they were intended to be, ultimately intended 